Greetings, my sweet podcast listeners. It's Legs Malone wishing you a very warm and happy hello. And how the heck are you? I hope everybody has been well. I cannot believe that 2015 is coming to an end. It always seems that time just gets faster and faster uh, as each day passes. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Whatever it is, I Again, I can't fucking believe 2015 is almost over and that 2016 is around the corner. We here at Lunch With Legs celebrated our second birthday that, again, went, well, unfortunately, like most of our initial weekly intentions, didn't go exactly weekly. <laughs> Life and freelance work has a funny way of disrupting previously intended schedules, and I apologize to those who want to hear more of these amazing interviews more frequently. I endeavor in 2016 to be a little bit better about putting out these podcasts on the regular because I do love it, and I have to say we actually have quite a few interviews backlogged right now, and it's just a matter of me making it happen and Dave to work his magic and then for me to post them. So do please send us some good vibes in fulfilling your dearest wishes in doing so. I am extraordinarily excited to bring you today's episode. One of my nearest and dearest friends, uh, world-famous Bob, joins us. We got together a couple of months ago to talk, and as always, it was an enlightening and amusing and heartfelt conversation. Bob is one of the most extraordinary people I know, and I am so excited to share our interview with you I guess, is there anything else I want to say before I launch into the regular? I don't think so, apart from thank you to those who are giving us your love in the form of donations. If you want to give a little year-end gift to us here at Lunch With Legs, we would greatly appreciate it. Your donations go to help us cover operating costs, uh, website stuff, equipment, you know, you name it. We're running at a very small deficit, which I'm very grateful for. And uh, even a gift of five, ten, or twenty dollars will really help push us into the black. So whatever you can give, we would be most appreciative. You can donate by going to our website, lunchwithlegs.com, and you will see a small PayPal button in the upper right-hand corner. If you can go in and click and give whatever you want, or if you are really feeling like it, you can give a monthly little gift, and it can be as small or as large as you would like. Whatever you are willing to give, we would be most appreciative. All right, dear sweet podcast listeners, let's do this. Go ahead, pull up a chair, pour yourself a cup of something good, and get ready for my interview with the one, the only, world-famous Bob. World famous Bob, <laughs> it is such a pleasure to have you on the Thank podcast. You. I know we have a competing, a moment for competing poodle affection. Movie star wants to make sure she's on the podcast. The podcast. Oh my god. Oh wait, what movie star? You're hijacking the podcast and making it your podcast. All right, we can do that later. <gasps> movie, you're so multi-talented. For those of you who don't know, movie star is the live pink toy poodle. And you can see pictures of her at theworldfamousbob.com. She is World Famous Bob's very well-groomed daughter, yeah. who happens to be the sweetest little poodle. Yeah. And uh, she... She has her own podcast now. She does have her own podcast. <laughs> it's called Snacks with Movie Star. <laughs> and she eats all your snacks. And, she, and that's it. <laughs> that's over. And we get to record her <laughs> chewing and enjoying it and then being done with it. <laughs> Well, I am so happy, Bob, to finally have you. I know that I have wanted you on this podcast ever since we began. So thank you for taking You're time welcome. out of your amazingly busy schedule. You're welcome. And, um, yeah, what's going on? How are you? What's shaking? I'm good. I'm going to make a collage later after this podcast. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm making a collage for my therapeutic activities class. And it's going to be a collage of my life. And, and it's going to have a lot of pictures of movie star on it. <laughs> <laughs> she is a pretty huge part of your life. She's pretty big. Now, um, I know all of this juicy goodness, but what, pray tell, are you in school for? I am studying gerontological studies. So I'm at LaGuardia Community College right now. 
I highly recommend it. It's an affordable education. And I'm a full-time student studying gerontological studies, which is the study of aging in society, not to be confused with geriatrics, which is the medical mm. side of dealing with older people. Gerontology is more the social aspects. And I believe that leads to the medical wellness of a person as well. So to make sure they remain included in society mm -hmm. and are given platforms where they can be contributing on a regular basis. And that's what I'm studying. I, it, and I'm, it's extraordinary because you are one of the most recognizable um, I mean, dare I say vanguards of the downtown art scene. I mean, you have led one of the most incredible, colorful, event-filled lives. And I would love to know uh, if you could share with us how you got to where you are studying gerontology. I have always been drawn to older people. And specifically, it tends to be older women. I've always been drawn to them. And I remember I asked myself, there's the obvious answers to that question, which I'll share as well. But I asked myself recently, where did this really stem from? My, I'm a granny chaser. That is <laughs> granny chaser. In case there's any word police out there, I just said granny chaser. And if you're a 90-year-old um, granny, if you are 90 or older and offended by that, I will take your call. But everybody else can just sit down and have a cup of tea and some scones, a hard candy, and a Kleenex. Thank you. So I asked myself, <laughs> I asked myself, the word police are not welcome in my home. I asked myself, where did this all come from? Like, really, it's really been catapulted by the burlesque legends, which I'll touch on. I really need to touch on that. But I, one of my earliest, happiest memories, I was three and four when this took place. And my... I was living in Taft, California, which is a oil town, and my dad worked for Chevron Oil, so it was where a lot of oil workers lived, blue-collar town, and for whatever reason, my dad and I had this thing, this activity. He would drive out to a truck stop in the middle of nowhere. There literally were tumbleweeds, if you can imagine, and it was just a truck stop counter, and he would take me with him when I was three or four. And it was something we did without any of the other family members. And I remember sitting on his lap and him letting me drive, which I wasn't really, of course, you know, I was pretending to drive. And it just, it was this really beautiful memory that resurfaced of my early childhood. And by the time we moved away from that place, I was five. So my memories are probably from being around four years old, I'm guessing. But the truck stop was ran by a really old woman in a house coat with a poodle. No way. And she had a son, and I just remember him kind of being in the background. You know, he didn't deal with the customers. I think they lived around the back. Mm. And my dad, the whole purpose of my dad going to this truck stop was to sit at the counter, to read the paper, drink coffee, and eat a bear claw pastry, and have no one talk to him. That was it, including me. But I was allowed to come along for whatever reason, and it's really special to me. And my dad was a very shy, quiet man, and he just wanted quiet all the time, and he never had it. So this was his way of getting it, I guess. So this older woman and her dog would entertain me. And I remember oh I have this gosh. specific memory of the stand-up refrigerators that you slide open the top. Usually it's a freezer to get a an ice cream bar, that's where she kept the bottles of pop, like these tall glass bottles of pop, and they were all different colors, like the rainbow. Wow. And I would slide open the glass top, and I'd, I have memories, physical memories, of leaning in so far that I almost felt like I was going to fall into the, oh my God. into the place where the sodas were, and I could never decide on what color I wanted to drink. I was always drawn to the red, but oh, the yellow is so pretty. And so she really came back and memory is a funny thing because you can enhance memories over the years. You can leave things out. You can highlight things, your brain and the retelling of a memory in your mind does something to it. That's beyond my scope. I'm not a scientist in that way, but I think that special pocket of calm and peace that I was given 
my life was very the opposite, mm-hmm. at, starting at a very young age. So that little pocket of peace and who represented that became permanently installed in my brain. And I've always been drawn to older women. And when I moved to Brooklyn, 19, I moved to Brooklyn 20 years ago from San Francisco, but 12 years ago I moved to Greenpoint. And the block I moved on specifically opened up a whole can of worms because it coincided with I started going out to Exotic World and became good friends with Dixie Evans about 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that really gave me not just the sweet old lady who could hand me a colored soda pop image of what it means to be older. I could, all of a sudden, there were versions of older ladies that I could see myself being. Mm. And that's what I got from the legends. Like, I got this, it redefined, I always say the legends of burlesque, our current legends of burlesque, are redefining what it means to age and be a woman. Or to age, right? Yeah. Regardless of gender. Straight up, yeah. And when I met Dixie Emmons at the first Teaserama burlesque festival in New Orleans, it just changed my whole world. Changed my whole world. And I met her and she was standing there and I went to see if I could get her a bar stool because I couldn't believe such a beautiful woman was being forced to stand. And she just kept complimenting me on my lipstick which was a cookie puss product that they don't make anymore. It was paint on glitter. Oh, wow. So it just stayed forever, and it sparkled like diamonds. None of that traveling that the press-on loose pot of glitter gives you now. It was perfectly sealed and shellacked. It looked like Dorothy's slippers on your lips. Wow. She just kept being memorized by my lips. Whatever gets her in the door, right? (laughs) So later on that night, I was asked. Dixie was auctioning off one of Gypsy Rose Lee's gowns. Wow. To raise money for Exotic World, the burlesque museum that she operated and lived at in Hellendale, California. And they walked up to me and said, would you like to hold up Gypsy's gown for Dixie on stage while she auctions it? Oh, my God. And I still have a picture of that moment. <gasps> wow. I still have a picture of that moment framed around here somewhere. And it's. I'm holding my martini glass because I'm getting ready to do martini time later. I'm holding up the dress, and, the, and we're both looking the same way, and we both have the Marilyn hair, and we're both... It's just a really um, it was a really powerful moment for me. I was like, of course I want to do that. Yeah. And after I met her in New Orleans, I realized I had to go out to Exotic World. Once I went out to Exotic World, what I saw was Dixie trying to keep the flame of burlesque alive. And I use that term a lot because it exactly describes what she was doing. She was shielding this flame from the winds of popularity or dispopularity, you know, times changing. She really shielded it and took care of it. And then whenever anybody came out, it was still there burning for them to learn about burlesque or to share about their burlesque experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of fans would go out and talk to her. Oh, I saw you in such and such theater. And I snuck in with my dad, you know, and just this really beautiful place where people who were interested about burlesque could go and have their own experience of it. What she also did with the Miss Exotic World pageant was she started inviting legends to attend the pageant. She wanted to extend the concept that Sally Rand, uh, sorry, oh my gosh, no. Jenny Lee. Jenny Lee. <laughs> like, wait. We're not going that far back. Jenny Lee, the original Bazoom Girl, she wanted to extend this get-together, right? So Jenny was this powerful organizer. She started she started the EDL, Exotic Dancers League, and her goal with that was to unionize exotic dancers, to create safe working conditions and fair pay. She really was something and the modern day equivalent of Jenny Lee I feel in spirit and body is Dirty Martini Mm -hmm. if if ever there was one it's her oh yeah and Jenny just had this real organizing spirit and real fighting um she was a fighter for what's right and due to her poor health she died from breast cancer out on the ranch where Exotic World was housed and Dixie came out to take care of her friend But before that happened, they had the big reunion, which the big reunion that we celebrate each year at the Burlesque Hall of Fame weekend, which is in June in Las Vegas. The collection at Exotic World has been transferred to the Burlesque Hall of Fame in Las Vegas. 
an exotic world in Hellendale, California is no more. Yeah. It, the property's been sold and it's been relocated and transformed into this new thing, the Burlesque Hall of Fame. But Jenny, when she was out there with her husband, Charlie, they had in San Pedro, California, they had this little bar called the Sassy Lassie and Sassy Lassie Beer Bust. And Jenny just called out a bunch of girlfriends and they got really drunk. I've seen the pictures. They got naked and they all left their bras and heels. So she nailed them to the wall as a joke and said, oh, it's a museum. And Dixie took that to heart. And Dixie and Jenny started a real museum. And it's amazing what an impact not only has that had on we we were we lost Dixie Evans physically a couple of years ago. But the impact that she had on continuing Jenny's idea or Jenny's ideology Mm -hmm. about being a united front as exotic dancers and then Dixie pulling that into the burlesque museum, exotic world and continuing Jenny's work. And then the impact that that had because small pockets of neo burlesque dancers started to hear like myself at events like the first ever burlesque festival, which was Teaserama. In 2000, yeah? Yes. Wow. I believe I believe it was in 2000. That was the first one. I went there and met people that, uh, the Pontani sisters, I had never met them. We live in Brooklyn. Wow. I had never met them. So not only did I meet people that were doing similar work to me from my own town, but people from Australia showed up. It really was the first time we all stood in a room and went, whoa, this is bigger than we all thought. Wow. You know? Wow. And, but the the neo-burlesquers, some of us heard about that, and then we made the pilgrimage out to Dixie. And a few people had made it before, and that's where it really, what's, what was different from Miss Exotic World compared to the pageants now is you were actually going to the homeland Mm. of what you did. It was a spiritual pilgrimage to go and see the relics of your past, to see the historical artifacts, to see Sally Rand's fans, to see Jane Mansfield, the heart-shaped Ottoman couch, to talk to Dixie Evans, who was the Marilyn Monroe of burlesque at the Minsky Brothers Theater. And she would invite her friends to come out to this pageant. And as the pageant grew, more friends started coming. So the concept of the reunion started getting just as large as the pageant. Mm. What ended up happening for me is I went every year. I missed one year. And it was unfortunately the year that Movie Star broke both of her front legs. And I didn't have the money to go because I was taking care of my girl. She's fine now. She can run so fast. But um, I went every year. And what happened was not only did my love for the art form grow, but my love for the women and men and some gender fluid people that created the artwork grew, right? So it wasn't just my love for what we were doing grew, my love for what had been started to grow. And it really gave me a sense of family. And what ended up happening is as I was having those feelings of family and I was meeting Liz Renee and Tura Satana and Kitten Tividad and Candy Baby Caramello. And I mean, it's just, the list is so crazy of the legends I've met over the years. They became the lady with the poodle giving me soda. Like, I feel like they connected to that and that need for me to find a mother. Like, really, a mother that not just was a mother, but a mother that understood me and a mother that could guide me. And I just really saw that. Some of them I viewed more as girlfriends and some of them more as protectors. But for me, Dixie was my mom. My combined interest already in older people and then meeting the burlesque legends, forget it. It just became the coolest thing you could be, was an interesting... I don't like people just because they're old. It's not a fetish. Mm-hmm. So you have to be an amazing person and be old, you know? Or maybe... Um, and what I mean by amazing is you don't have to be on a stage stripping to be an amazing older person. There are corners of quiet people that are just as amazing if you can get them to start talking. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, if I meet an older person and they're an asshole, then I'm not going to like them. There's no, like, get out of jail card just because you're a senior <laughs> citizen with me. You'll always have my respect, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean you'll have my admiration. But the legends just blew it, blew the roof off for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And then when I moved to this specific block in Greenpoint, the same thing happened. I had developed these relationships with these women over 12 years, and it was the 12, it was a year after I moved there that I got movie stars, so they all became, like, grandmothers to mm. her. And it was this magical block where everyone knew each other in a good way. You looked out for each other, and I had what I refer to now as my housecoat mafia. <laughs> right? So, like, my ladies in charge with the brooms and the housecoats, and they were all the landladies, Polish-Italian neighborhood. The women owned everything. The rent checks went to their names. Men would drink it all, right? So it was this really, like, wow. a different source of strength and a non-flashy source mm-hmm. of strength that I really craved as well. Yeah. And I think between having that experience in Greenpoint attached to my, you know, being so involved with the legends of burlesque gave me a fuller scope, not just retired show business people are amazing. But that's why I say, like, what is amazing to me is not just the flashy, but the... (laughs) The woman sitting on her stoop that took six months of saying hello before she liked me, you know, that like the kielbasa in her pockets grunting at me, (laughs) grunting. Stella would grunt at me. Hi, Stella. Good morning. (laughs) What's good about it? Wow. And for six months, I was like, I love you. (laughs) I loved her. She was there every day. I could count on her. I knew what was going to happen, but I was hoping for a change. <laughs> but there's something beautiful about the consistency Absolutely. of Stella's. Just like, I'm not here to impress anyone or get people to like me. I'm just here. And then after six months of just saying, hello, you look so nice in pink, Stella. <gasps> I hate pink. She's wearing all pink. She tells me she hates it. <laughs> I'm like, all right. All right, Stella, have a great day. After six, it was about six months, it was starting to get chilly, and she said, one day I was walking past her, and I said, hello, and she said, where's your jacket? And I almost started crying. Wow. And I stopped. I didn't say a word. I walked back. I went up the flights of stairs. I got my jacket. I unlocked my door. Like, it wasn't, you know, right there. Yeah, yeah, five, yeah. five doors away. And three flights up. Put on my jacket, came down, walked back to her, looked her in the eyes, and said, thank you. And after that, she started talking to me. Wow. And I think the th- the thing that I've noticed about old people is they are in- oftentimes invisible. And how can you hear something you can't see? Mm-hmm. So they're not very heard as well. And when I notice that and then I have the opposite to offer them, I think the connection's mutual. Like what they get from it from my interest in them is they're seen and heard mm-hmm. and respected. And what I get from it is that sense of having a connection to the future, mm-hmm. which makes me feel safe. Yeah. People, I often say hanging out with old, my favorite quote that I made up is about this is hanging out with older people is like getting a postcard from your future. And who wouldn't want to read that? Like, you need to read that. Yeah. But you can't get that postcard unless you hang out with them. And also that their experience is like a beam coming from a flashlight that stretches down the road longer than yours ever could. Mm. So, in a way, it creates a sense of safety for me Mm. to have, well, what's it like then? Or what's it going to be like then? Maybe their experience is going to be totally different than mine. But the idea that somebody's been there already and they're okay... And then they can share that experience with me. That's yeah. what I get out of it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just going back to what you said, you know, about how you can't hear something you can't see. I know that one of the big, and especially with the aging population now, I mean, I, this is something I'm definitely passionate about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in school for it, which is one of the things I love, like hearing you talk about, like the things you're learning, like the, mm-hmm. even just the titles of your class alone blow my mind in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, I guess I have a couple questions. Well, one, I, I definitely want to also touch on your involvement with the senior community right now, and especially your work at SAGE, mm-hmm. um, which is an Services and advocacy. Thank you. Services and advocacy for GLBT elders. 
is what SAGE stands for. Thank you. They did rearrange the LGBTQ to make it work for them. Otherwise, they'd be on sale. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd be on sale. <laughs> so good, like. And there is no queue yet. And I asked them the other day. I asked my supervisor, how come there's no queue? And they said they're not comfortable. A large majority of older LGBT people are not comfortable with that word. So it just goes to show every generation has what makes them feel powerful, right? And we need to acknowledge that whether it's the older generation or whether it's the new wave Mm -hmm. of, of young people coming up. But both sides really need to be heard. And I said, do you think that will change? And they smiled and said, what do you think? When we're old, are we going to add the cue? And I said, yeah, we are. So everything's always in transition when it comes to language and when it comes to empowerment, right? What makes people feel empowered versus, I mean, how can you give people the tools to empower them to take care of themselves versus creating a consistent neediness in a community? Like, so one of the ways you can empower people is through language. Mm -hmm. So what empowers one group does not empower another. And we'll add a cue and then On my way out, somebody will add something else, you know? I mean, and now the current correct form is LGBTQIA for intersex and asexual. So there have been two letters added, and I just want to acknowledge that. And at the LGBTQ youth organization where I volunteer at, HMI, Hetrick Martin Institute, here in the city, in New York City, um, they do LGBTQQ yeah, because their age group is ages 12 to 25. So the second Q is for questioning because that's a space that you should, I don't think there's an age limit on that, but it's nice that they include it because it's hard sometimes, uh, specifically at those ages, to identify. Oh, my God. It's hard enough to go through adolescence, but <laughs> no. especially going through, like, questioning both your sexuality and gender identity. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. So they create space for that so people don't have to commit, which is great. Which is awesome. It's really great. So I do like working with young people as well, but I feel like I want to... The reason why I started going to school and I have my internship now at Sage as a product of that is because I didn't even know gerontological studies was a field, but it is. And I was studying for my GED which I got three years ago when I was 40. And as a reward, I'm such a nerd. As a reward for doing my math practice, I would let myself watch a social studies GD prep course on PBS. (laughs) (laughs) Some people go on Amazon. Some people eat a cookie. Some people go on the I mean, Legs is laughing right now because she knows you're listening to me and you're like, you're a dork that likes old people, whatever. But she's so much more than that. Everybody. I am she's so, so much more than that. I used to be really, really, really crazy. Like my life is such, it's just like, this is the new channel on my TV station, but there's TV stations. You definitely need to be over 21 to watch. It's just very like, it's surreal to me. It's surreal to me that um, it all makes sense to me as well, but it's very surreal that that's how I reward myself now. I'm in recovery, and I'm very open about that, so I just celebrated on August 26, 18 years sober. Congratulations. So for someone who used to celebrate by shooting heroin, watching a PBS show is pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I've always been interested in writing... The cutting edge of society, and in the 80s, it was being punk rock for me, and now the most punk rock thing I think you can be today is sober. Oh, absolutely. Completely sober, because we live in a society, and I don't judge people who do stuff, it's fine, but we live in a society that depends on a lack of awareness by its citizens for it to achieve the not-so-wonderful purposes it's setting out to achieve. Absolutely. So the more people are asleep, the better it's going to be for those in power. Absolutely. So I feel like as a revolution, we could all, you know, even if you don't go sober completely, just take seven days away from anything you use, whether it's shopping or sex or cigarettes or alcohol or drugs. Take seven days away from all of it and see 
see how the world digests. It's wow. a very different experience. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I am sitting here with chocolate, so I just want to be transparent <laughs> when I say that. Probably not even enough for the whole podcast. No. So I'm just being real. No, it's fine. And um, But when I saw that on PBS, the social studies program that day was about gerontological studies. I lost my mind. I couldn't even believe. Wow. Imagine if you love chewing gum and then you're like, what? Chewing gum's a job? I can, yeah. Oh my gosh! I'm be a CEO of a chewing gum company where I just have to chew gum all day long. Yes, please. I could be like a leader in the gum chewing industry. <laughs> That's how I felt. I was like, "What? Old people are work?" I couldn't believe it. And not medical. Again, that yeah, was important yeah, yeah. for me because I don't want to do anything quality of life, and quality social, of life, and yeah. social programs. And and I said, "That's it." So I got my GED and I and I took my entrance exams. And at 43, I'm in college for the first time ever, and I love it. I love it so much. And it's coming. You know, the baby boomers are becoming seniors, and not only are they very different from the last generation, but they have income, some of them. Some of them yeah. don't. They're way more mobile due to health and technology advances. And so they're going to need a lot of services. So it's a booming industry on top of that, which is kind of amazing yeah. that the thing I'm really interested in is organically also something that there's going to be a huge need for. Yeah. That's kind of great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the baby boom generation, you know, everybody born post-war, yep. like, they're all coming up right now. And they're yep. a significant portion of the population Yeah, as well. My specific, of course, the my specific area of interest is creating safe spaces for LGBTQIA and allies of age, like seniors, to just creating safe spaces for LGBTQ people to age gracefully and with flair. That is what I'm committed to, like a graceful aging process, meaning that they find the supports that they need, that they have the space to be who they are. And with flair means just bringing what they've always brought to the party, which is this amazing zest for life or an attitude or an eye roll or a finger snap, whatever they bring to life, that their own personal flair, not my idea of flair, to create space for that. And one of the programs I have now is called Sparkle for Seniors, and we do burlesque and boylesque shows. Yes, I've been very lucky and to legs been a part of been two of them. in the show twice. Unbelievable experience. <laughs> Unbelievable experience. And this is New York City, right? I know this isn't going to go over everywhere, but guess what? We found a place where it did, yes. and we're doing it, and they love it, and we're doing shows, and we're bringing people in, and part of my internship at the Sage in Midtown is that I'm actually producing and creating over three months with some Sage clients and outside performers, an intergenerational variety holiday show that will take place in December, the first week, downtown in the East Village, and the ticket sales will go to benefit Sage programs, and it's going to be called the Holiday Extravaganza. Oh my God. So, and this is open to the public? It's going to be open to the public. And if you want to stay tuned, you could just go to theworldfamousbob.com and there you can sign up for my newsletter. That would be the best way to stay, stay tuned because I'll that. send out a big newsletter when it happens. Oh, absolutely. That's and there'll be sliding scale tickets as well because I don't want f- people to be priced out of the experience. Oh, it's going to be really... That's really generous of you. Really great. That's amazing. Now, I want to... I mean... You just said that you, you're 18 years sober. Mm-hmm. Can you take it like, okay, so if you 18 years ago, the day that you chose to become sober could look 18 years in the future and see this, what do you think your response would have been? Or even like comprehension, perception, like basic, would you have even be able to think of something like this 18 years ago? Is that something that would have... I think the most, if you time traveled me, and I time traveled to my past a lot to let those versions of myself know that it's going to be okay. Mm. And and the only reason I can do that is because it's so great now. And I don't have like these messages of doom to the past versions of me. It's always, it's going to get better and it's always, gonna, it's going to work out. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to work out. And I think if I time traveled forward, which I don't do that often, but sometimes I do. If I time traveled forward from the day I got sober to now, I was in rehearsals then for a show, a tour that I was getting ready to go on. And I think if I time traveled, I'd be happy that I'm still 
in burlesque and that I'm still creating art with mm-hmm. people and storytelling shows. I'd be happy about that. I'd be really happy about my marriage. I'd be like, wow, that's really great. I can't even believe that worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be really surprised that I'm in school because I I got sober young. I mean, I'm 43, so what, like 25 I got sober. Wow. Smoke coming out of our ears right now. <laughs> I was 25 when I got sober. And so I got sober young, but I started using everything really young. Mm-hmm. And I left home at 15. So I just really never had a chance to grow up naturally. I had to just be an adult right away. And um, I think the thing I'd be the most... Shockingly enough, I think the thing I'd be the most surprised about right now, besides the fact that I wear jeans... I would have really been upset back then. <laughs> like, I never wore jeans. I spent an hour on my makeup every day, and now I just run out of the house in jeans. Amazing. But um, it's okay. I choose my battles now, right? So I think as you get older, your energy shifts mm-hmm. and your focus shifts. And I decide, you know, yeah, it was helpful to do my makeup for two hours every day in the East Village in my 20s because it got me known. And then being known got me opportunities. And then my talent in those opportunities got me new opportunities. And I'm at a place now where I'm 24 years into my career, and I feel like I have less to prove, but everything to learn, everything Mm -hmm. to learn. And that's the great flip side of that. And if I time traveled now, I think the thing that would surprise me the most is that I'm in college and getting straight A's. Because I really, why would you take your GED at 40? I lied my entire life. Yeah, I got my GED. Nobody ever checked it for job applications. And when I went to get my GED, I didn't know that I was going to study gerontological studies. That was my reward, remember? So it wasn't like I had a purpose. The reason why I got my high school diploma at 40 was because I realized I was still thinking about it. There was something that didn't matter. Why was I still thinking about it? And I felt dumb. I actually felt like I wasn't smart. And I would say, it's just a piece of paper. It's just this. It's just that. I'm really street smart or I'm artistic. And those things are true. Mm -hmm. It is a piece of paper. I am really street smart. I am really artistically intuitive. And my life experience has been amazing enough to give me a great education. And I'm constantly seeking questions and answers. But there is something about not being allowed to grow up. I had to go back and do every, I'm in the process of recreating every milestone that, you know, a typical, I will say typical American teenager has because I went straight into survival mode. So I didn't get to have those experiences, the hard part of them, which builds confidence, right? And the fun part of them, which creates a sense of achievement. I didn't get those things. And As a result, I can get really stuck in survival mode still, and I can also get really stuck in everything has to serve a purpose. Mm. And that's why I started the interview about my collage, because I'm so excited I'm being given college credit to make a collage, because I wouldn't be making a collage today unless I had to. But I know I'm going to have so much fun. So it's about creating space for me to play and not have everything be so serious But I think at 25, I'd be like, you're kidding. Mm. I'm on the dean's list and I'm in college? Really? I have time to go to school and not live on the streets? (laughs) You know? Like, how how do you make that happen? And Eric, or Barrick, my husband, has been a huge source of support. Not like, not money support. That, as a married, as a people who are married and in a partnership, we share finances. So yes, he has financially helped me Mm -hmm. achieve this, but also the hours that I was crying over my math exam, you know, he came in and helped me study or just believing in me or reminding me that I made this choice when things get really hard. And I think I can't do it. Reminding me that I did pass my math test and all of those things. And I think when the great thing about I think a lot of people, if anyone listening was put in a position in their life at a young age where they just had to depend on themselves a lot, whether they still stayed at home or not, like just everybody else was out to lunch or so volatile that they had to be in charge of their own safety for whatever reasons. The details aren't even important. I think what happens is we just get stuck in this, I can do this, but I can do this on my own. 
Yeah. And what's available? And then maybe you give a few people the trust of having them support you and they let you down. And you're like, see, I got to do it on my own, you know? And I think what's become available to me as a result of having a real partnership with my husband, finding someone that's, it's an even exchange of love and respect. It's not imbalanced and there's clear communication and honesty and there's no um, desire to hide things from one another, but there's also uh, a wellness around being individuals as well as being a part of this team, a couple, a partnership. What's been available to me as a result of that support, I don't even think I would have been able to digest at 25. Mm. I probably would have just, you know, if I could time travel forward, I don't know that I could finish the rest of my life because it would be so overwhelming to see not just that I, oh, I got that now, that's amazing, but that that's possible and I have it, that's unbelievable. So having that, you know, having a safety net's one thing, but having um, safety nets or safety nets, having somebody really believe in you to the point to where you're just carried if that is what needs to happen, you know, but not for too long. Then you're put back on your own feet. Right. And you're just told you can do it enough. I think that's the biggest shock mm. right now in my life. That if you I had can to go back. do it? Yeah, that I can do it and that I have the support. I never thought I would have the luxury of higher education in the conventional way. I never thought I'd have the money or the time to go to college because I had to work so hard to pay my bills. Yeah. And with a GED education, you're very limited on what types of jobs you can get. And I always thought, well, I'm doing great for a high school dropout. Look, I created this confidence coaching program, and I've been teaching around the world for 11 years, and I became a nightclub superstar, and I'm a burlesque star, and I do storytelling. I'm like, I'm doing great for a high school dropout. There was always that undertone. Yeah. And so I felt like, well, if I've done, somebody said it, was it you? Somebody said, if you've done this well think it was you it may have been if you've done this well as a high school dropout imagine what you could do if you moved that if you upped the ante Mm. imagine what you could do you know if this is the amazing stuff you can do without that education imagine what you could do with it like gently expanding that comfort zone within your mind's eye yeah beginning to open up that mental window to consider that yeah absolutely so i think that would be the I know that's a really long answer. No, God bless it. But that would be the answer. Wow. Now, I have to say, I mean, speaking about that and looking at your work with, uh, you know, certainly at the Hetrick Martin Institute, which is for the LGBTQIA youth, mm-hmm. um, what has been, I can only imagine what it must be like for a youth who, you know, could be in an, an as extreme a situation as homeless, mm-hmm. um, you know, having you at the center to talk to and you be the face of like, Hey, it's possible. Like you don't have to stay homeless. You don't have to stay in this awful situation. Mm -hmm. What has their response been to you? When I first went to HMI to volunteer, I had an interview and an intake, and then I went and got fingerprinted and a background check because it is on a public school campus. It's at the Harvey Milk High School. I highly recommend donating to HMI. It's a really great program, and they use the program after the school day. But because you're on campus, you had to go through an extensive. So it really weeds out the people who are kind of thinking about volunteering, you know. And when she, during my interview, she said, what do you want to do here? I said, I have tons of ideas, but I want to find out what they want first. So instead of coming here and saying, oh, I'm going to do my confidence workshop, or oh, I'm going to do a drag workshop, or oh, I'm going to do this, I would rather get a weekly position where I become part of the emotional landscape and I get to know the clients. So I was assisting the art therapist at first, and then they put me in the peace portal where I was just handing out computers and had to politely shush people when needed so there would be a safe, quiet space. And I'm really good at shushing people. (laughs) Excuse me. I need you to keep it down. Thank you. I really love it. Like, there's something weird about it. And, um... (laughs) What happened is I did become a part of the emotional landscape. And there were nights I would just come home crying to Eric because the idea of 
sorry, the idea of these people that I was getting to know and love having to return to their circumstances while I returned to my unbelievably amazing life and my warm home and my pets and my husband and was really hard. And um, I luckily have stuck around there. I've been there about a year and a half now. I'm taking a break this semester because of my workload, but I'm going back in January. And I've been there long enough to also see a lot of improvements. I've seen some of these kids get housing and I've seen some of them get enrolled in school. And some of them are already doing really well. And they're college students and they come there for the different services. So it's a range of levels of need. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, when I talk to them, it's usually in response to something I've asked them, you know, and then they share about themselves. And if somebody's talking about how GED classes are hard, I can say, oh, I know. And when they say you do, I can say, yeah, I did it, you know, three years ago. It was really hard to study and I didn't know how hard it would be and I didn't know what to expect, you know. So there is, and then they look at me and they're like, really? So I feel like my experience, my experience of homelessness is from 15 to 25 on and off. And that has made such an impact that I connect with them right away. But also this, my experience of breaking past the limits that that type of upbringing creates in your mind is really present because I'm just now doing that, continuing to do that work in a big way. So I do feel like a lot of people that go into human services or social work have these missions because they want to help save people or help people save themselves, which is the real intent of that field. Yeah. And it draws a very specific type of person, but I do feel like my experience of being a homeless queer youth and being an adult and putting together that part of my life, like my academic career and being able to look at them and say, I have had 25 years out there without a college degree. And I can tell you, it does hold you back yeah. and it is important, but it's also important to find what you're passionate about. So I feel like I have been able to have stronger connections. It's easier to listen to someone when it's almost like when you listen to someone's experience and you've had something similar, it's a different type of listening mm. because my jaw doesn't drop open. I don't go, oh, it's horrible. It, the reaction that the person sharing has is different mm. than, you know, and obviously a trained mental health professional or social worker isn't going to have that reaction either probably. Right. But I think there's like almost a kinship that happens when you can understand someone and where mm -hmm. they're coming from. So it's really special. I love, I love the people there. Um, my really good friend, Glenn Marlow works there now. And I love that organization. It was started in 1979, I believe by Hedrick and Martin, these two gentlemen, and they met a 15 year old boy who was gay and was homeless and they couldn't believe it. So they started that. Wow. And that's the other thing. It just goes to show you can have an idea of wanting to help somebody. And decades later, that's helping a lot of people. Wow. It's inspiring. There's a bust a sculpture of them in the hallway of the administrative section. Oh, wow. It's really cool. Now, I, I just wish, I mean, one of the things I'm really grateful for with the whole, like, consciousness rising that is happening in our world right now is that the issues surrounding all groups that are not sort of, for lack of a better term, like privileged white people, like straight mm -hmm. white people, like the the struggles. Oh, the people running the show. Yeah, the people running the show. Thank you. <laughs> You're yes. welcome. Um, the people running the show. You know, everybody else. Really, their both their struggles and supports seem to be coming more and more visible mm -hmm. now more than ever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious if you know, I mean, I guess, well, A, does HMI, are the, I mean, I know, like, I feel like there's a lot of support on the coasts, and I'm sure there's some, like, mixed into the U.S., but, like, does HMI have any other branches anywhere? If anybody listening is, like, from another place and they may know somebody who's at risk or... No, I believe HMI is just an organization based in, in New, New York, York City. Okay. Yeah. I know in... 
I know there are other places, you know, there are other places in it. I mean, the, I think the big blessing, if you're stuck in a small town and it's horrible, I think, and I'm not saying small towns are horrible, but if you're in a big place and it's horrible, meaning your experience of the place is horrible and there's not a lot of open ears and listening to who you are and you don't feel safe, that the internet is your best resource, mm -hmm. you know, and even people who don't have computers, you can go to the public library and use a computer for free. And the internet's your best resource. Even if it doesn't link you to actual resources nearby, you can find a sense of community online. And that's something I didn't have growing up. We didn't have the internet. Oh, she's old. <laughs> don't say that around the 90 year old. Don't put you in your place. But we didn't have smart, we didn't have cell phones. Ran home to check the machine. I didn't have a phone, mm -hmm. so I went to the pay phone and called people, and there was no internet. So I feel like that's, there's a lot of disadvantages with the internet too, about, you know, cyberbullying and lack of privacy and confidentiality, but ultimately if you use it as a tool of empowerment, then that's what it can be for you. Yeah. And you can find help that way, definitely. It's just a resource that we didn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask earlier, my mind gets so like swamped with all these ideas when I come to asking a question, but what, I mean, apart from um, gender and sexuality identification and orientation, what would you say the populations that you work with, both senior and youth, have in common? A feeling of not being heard and seen. Mm. So that's the thread that connects LGBTQ youth and LGBTQ seniors is a feeling of not being heard and not being seen or being seen in a dangerous way, right? A lack of safety, I guess, yeah. for youth is a big concern because there's a lot of um, obstacles when you are, especially if you're visually challenging somebody else's concept of gender, that can create a lot of anger in people. Yeah. And so there's safety issues. I feel like the younger people feel like they're never listened to and the older people feel like they're never seen. Wow. So eventually one of my ideas is to connect the two. And I'm sure it's been done before. You know, I didn't wake up and make a wheel today. <laughs> but I'd like to connect the two in a way that they solve each other's problems. Yeah. So I'm it looking at create an intergenerational dialogue. Yeah. I'm looking at a way to do that. I want to have a storytelling event, hopefully between if I can get a couple people at HMI and a couple people at Sage, that'd be enough. Oh wow. And have the senior t have you buddy up with an opposite. So have the senior tell the gay youth's story and have the youth tell the senior oh story. Oh my god. So oh you my hear this god. story from the forties and fifties but in the voice of a... In the voice of a young person. And you hear the young person's story, but in the voice of a different generation. And that would guarantee that they couldn't be out to lunch during the yeah. listening, you know? Totally. They got to pay attention. Yeah. That's amazing. So, like, Freaky Friday at a senior center. Nice. <laughs> That's my goal. I also want to bring programs to places that aren't as blessed as New York City and San Francisco. San Francisco just passed this year an anti discrimination law against LGBTQ seniors and housing. Wow. And it is the first place in America to have anti-discrimination laws. So that literally means something that I want to leave your listeners with is there's a documentary called Gen Silent and I watched the trailer for it. Actually getting a copy of it has proven difficult, but the trailer's on YouTube. G-E-N and then the second word is silent. It's three minutes long, and if you don't have a Kleenex in your hand by the end, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> you might want to get your heart checked. <laughs> might have been stolen in your sleep. So what's happening now is a large percentage, the social structure of how we care for our elders is not sufficient for the wave of baby boomers that are coming. And what's happening right now to the seniors that are in place or seeking assisted living or long-term care solutions is the majority of those places, whether they're privately operated and funded or nonprofit or a mixture of the two, are religious-based. Huh. So a large percentage of nursing homes are attached, affiliated, or ran by a religion. Right. And what's happening as these older 
amazing warriors and trailblazers and powerful lesbians, all these people, right? So the really old, meaning over 70, mm -hmm. that's what really old means. The really old, it's a term I learned in my class. You may have heard it really old, but <laughs> next time you use it about yourself, you're saying you're over 70. So the really old population that's LGBTQ, they are needing the assistance of these places. Medicare, which is what is for 65 and older people in this country, and we pay into it, and then we get to use it when we're 65 or older. Medicare covers some of the cost, sometimes all of the cost to these nursing homes and places. But that being said, these people don't have the money or the resources to move to Palm Springs mm -hmm. to live in the gated gay community that I want to live in tomorrow. Right. They don't have the money, right? Or they don't have the money. People go, oh, I've heard about gay retirement homes. I'm like, yeah, you've heard about them, but is there one in your neighborhood? And is there one that'll take Medicare? That's what I want to know. You've heard about them because they're so novel that they're conversation pieces. Yeah. So what's happening is these elders are being forced into these institutions that are regulated by religious organizations and religions and being forced to go back in the closet. Oh, God. And if you watch the trailer, it highlights a couple, an older gay male couple. One is a African-American gentleman and one's white. And they're in love. And they're trying to find a nursing home where they can hold hands. Oh what God. has been happening, they also, that generation lives in fear. So a lot of that generation never came out. So the ones that did come out, if they go into these institutions and admit that they're homosexual or lesbian or trans or bisexual, then they are sending in religious figures to pray them oh back to straight. God. And this is how oh, we're rewarding. Jesus Christ. This is how we're rewarding the people that make Laverne Cox on the cover of Time possibility. This is how we're saying thank you. And Laverne Cox on the cover of Time is a triumph. But once our elders are in safe spaces, that's the real triumph, right? So the progress and having more visibility in the world and having larger conversations and having more legislation, legislation, create protective laws. This is all really important, but we can't forget about the pioneers while yeah. we do that. The sage in Midtown where I go to the first time I hosted a show, I said, can I ask how many of you were at Stonewall the night the riots started and six hands went up? Wow. And how are you going to thank that person? So, it's great to reach out to the youth and they need that encouragement so they can grow up to think that they can do anything and to know that they can do anything, but do not forget to look forward because I feel like everything, it's so easy to lend a hand up by looking down, but look up too at the people that are ahead of you because it's equally important that the people who have done all this work for us, that the people who have fought and had the courage to live their lives as who they are, have safe, sp safe spaces to age gracefully and with dignity and with flair. And, you know, what's it like in Oklahoma? Oh, my God. If you're a gay man, what's it or like? Missouri. What's or... it like in Missouri, you know? So we really need to... I mean, I would just encourage everyone who's listening to make a new friend that's over 20 years older than you, at least. The older, the better. And if you email legs, the oldest person who wins gets an 8x10 signed autographed <gasps> copy Boom. of one of my photographs. Hells yes. But uh, So one of my oldest best friends is 97. She's going to be 98 in February. So top that, please. <laughs> and, uh, I just encourage people... It's great to go and volunteer, but also just become friends with an old person. Not only are you, like, find, like, shake it up. Yeah. Like, have a senior in your life. Even if, I mean, outside of your family, like, find a neighbor, find someone, go to a senior center, just go and visit. Yeah. And look for somebody that you can have that relationship with because people will say, you're such a good person. You're so amazing. And they won't even realize that you're getting more out of it than you're giving. Yeah. And you can just smile and say, oh, it's nothing. 
I, yeah, I mean, I really, I really thank you for saying that because I feel that aging and especially end of life stuff is just, it's so taboo in our society. You know, it's like mm-hmm. put the old people in a home, keep them out of sight, keep them out of mind. You know, like we're paying the people to take care of them. Good. Okay, great. We can go about it. It's a nice place. I mean, it's a nice place. Right, it is a nice place. It's so nice. Visit more. Right, so totally. So like, just doing what you can and realizing that that's going to be you if you're lucky. So we have this really schizo. We have this really um, schizophrenic, or I don't want to use that word. I'm sorry. I take that back, and I apologize. We have this very dual way of thinking, like split way of thinking about aging. Everyone in America wants to live forever. Youth obsessed, but nobody wants to get old. You know what that looks like? Setting yourself up for extreme failure. Yeah. Age is just a number, right? I'm not saying you have to get old, but your body will age. Whether your mind gets old or not is up to you. But your body is going to age. And the only way you can keep it from aging is to die. That's your alternative. So when your body ages and you have this great sparkling young mind, who do you think is going to pay attention to you? That's it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're scared or worried about the answer, start living the example of what you want to have happen for you. I was going to say start, start engaging. And I think that's really key is to set examples for other people that, yes, we should have elders in our community. Yes, they should be in our conversations. No, it shouldn't just be a once a month field trip. Like they should be active members of the society like they are. And One of my mottos for one of my groups, I don't have all my groups yet. You know, I'm not in the field. I'm just interning. But one of my mottos is going to (laughs) be out of the bingo halls and back on the streets. (laughs) And I want to have a gang called the Pink Walkers. We're going to wear matching pink neck scarves. And we're going to be an activity-based gang. And we're going to have dances. And we're going to go on walks, the Pink Walkers. Mm-hmm. And I want to get club jackets that are pink satin that say, out of the bingo halls and back on the streets. If you see me coming near you with a clipboard and kids, just participate. Because <laughs> that means you've already gotten old. <laughs> it means you're there, honey. <laughs> you've arrived. Oh, my God. I can't. I, it's. This is so amazing. I can't believe we have been speaking for one hour. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. I mean, I could just... I mean, I love you deeply, and we could talk about a myriad of topics, but this is so timely, and it really means a lot to me that you are so, you're pursuing what you love, Hmm. and you're not letting any limitation holding you, hold you back from that, Mm -hmm. you know, any self-perceived limitation, like, oh, I don't, you know, well, I'm not good enough to do that, which is sort of like the top, like, self-sabotage thought that anybody has. Um, I used to be this way about burlesque. And now it's doing fine, so I'm going to switch gears. Yeah. You know, I was a burlesque uh, enthusiast when I first started. And my my goal was to create, to help contribute to a burlesque community that was large enough to bring it back to its glory days. And to be an active member in that community and to be on as many stages in the world as possible and bring joy to people sitting in their seats. And I feel like I've been doing that for 19 years now. And... I'm lucky enough to still be doing that, but it doesn't need my full attention. It's like it's grown up. It's going yeah. to college. I can visit whenever. But And so when I realized that my burlesque career child had grown up, I realized that I had energy to give to something else, and I've committed the next 20 years of my life to creating safe spaces for LGBTQ seniors. And in 20 years, when I'm 63, we'll see how I feel about it. <laughs> we'll see if anything will have changed. Mm-hmm. We'll see. If you're going to then want to work with the very old. Mm -hmm. Probably. (laughs) um, This is, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I mean, I'm so, I I want us to begin to wrap up, um, but I guess as a, what would you like to say to my listening audience in closing? Any pearls of wisdom, any advice, any, how, how would you like to end this? interview I would like to end this with a detailed description of movie star the toy poodle done and done. just how it began she is laying she's eight and a half pounds okay she just corrected me she's eight pounds <laughs> <laughs> she's laying on a colorful woven Mexican blanket 
her head nestled on a day of the dead pillow and her eyelids dropping a half mass at the end of a beautiful day. Movie star. <laughs> I love your legs. I love you, Bob. Thank you so much. And there you have it, folks, my interview with the incredible world-famous Bob. You can find her online. You can take her classes at New York School of Burlesque. Follow her on Twitter at Movie Star Poodle. And, uh, yeah, worldfamousbob.com. It might even be theworldfamousbob.com. We recorded the interview a while ago, and I haven't listened to it again since doing it. So hopefully she did say that. I have a feeling she did. Uh, and you can always just Google her to drink in the legendary woman that she is. All right, everybody, looking forward to bringing you a brand new episode very soon, just in time for the end of the year. Wishing you all well. Stay warm, stay healthy, be good, be sweet to yourselves above all. And I am sending you tons of love, bringing you another episode real soon, guys. Ciao.